Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. It took just a very brief visit to Rome in high school for today's guest, Katie Parla, to fall in love with the city and ultimately move there after college to study its food and culture. Over the past 16 years, she's made a career of understanding and writing about the traditional dishes of the city, which she documented in her first cookbook, Tasting Rome. In her latest book, Food of the Italian South, Katie broadens her view to the whole region, capturing the dishes particular to this sometimes overlooked part of the country. If you're planning a trip to Italy and want to take in some lesser-traveled areas, I can't imagine a better guide. She's in conversation with Booklarder's culinary director, Amanda Coba, who has traveled quite a bit in Italy over the past couple of years. They talked in our kitchen in July 2019. Here's Katie Parla and Food of the Italian South. Hey everybody, thank you so much for being here today. I'm Amanda, like Polina said, and we are so thrilled to have Katie Parla here. I've followed Katie's work for many years. Um, I first learned about her with her first book, Tasting Rome, which we'll probably talk more about today. Before we get started, I just want to give you guys a little bit of background on Katie. Katie is a Rome-based food and beverage educator, journalist, and culinary guide with her company, Katie Parla Tours, based in Rome. She studied art history at at Yale. She has a master's in Italian gastronomic culture. She is a certified sommelier. She has an archeological speleology certification from the city of Rome. She also hosts an almost weekly podcast called Gola. And she's written and edited more than 20 books, including the IACP winner, Tasting Rome. Her writing has appeared in so many publications, The New York Times, The Guardian, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, so much. And you read this book, it's just really obvious that that somebody wrote this who has dedicated their life to understanding this food culture and celebrating it and sharing it. I'm so thrilled that we have this packed room and then we all get to sort of um, learn from Katie and celebrate this book today. So I thought a good place to start. I kind of want to hear your Italy story. So you were born and raised in New Jersey in an Italian-American family. What took you to Italy and why did you stay and why the South? So many good questions. Thank you so much for having mm-hmm. me. Thank you. Shouts to Didi for cooking the pasta. Mm-hmm. Why Italy? I visited when I was 16. Um, with my Latin class. I went to West Windsor Plainsboro High School with Aaron Sullivan over here. (laughs) Go Pirates! Um, And randomly, my public school had a Latin program, which was such a huge privilege, and we went on this very awful-slash-huge privilege, 13-city, eight-day bus tour. (laughs) And it was really intense, and our stay in Rome was very brief, um, and that sort of felt bad and hurt me (laughs) that we had to leave after six hours to go to, like, some (laughs) gift shop. As soon as I went home, I told my family I'm moving to Rome when I grow up. It was all about Rome. I like signed up for Italian at the community college in, in our town and started studying you know, Italian culture. And then when I moved after earning a degree in art history in 2003, I thought I initially would continue my art history studies, but I got very obsessed with food culture, regional food culture in particular. And with each day that I was spending in Rome, the romantic illusions of Italy started to decay. And I realized that there was a lot to say about the food culture that wasn't fluffy and wasn't nice. 
and needed to be thought of critically, and that the most respectful way to document Italian culture and Italian regional culture is to tell the truth. So I started writing critical reviews of restaurants and interviewing chefs and trying to put a spotlight on people who, in my opinion, and that of others, were doing the good work and not making compromises in their sourcing and being really respectful of farmers and nature. And so since moving to Italy, you know, 16 years ago, Rome has been my base and I still remain very, very devoted to that city. But when I have a free day, I take an hour train ride to Naples. If I have a couple of weeks free, I head to Puglia or Basilicata or Cilento, where I know you've spent mm -hmm. time, either regions or subregions that I think you can never really know Italy until you know those places too, and try to immerse myself in places that I know well and get to know them better. And then also try to find new areas that I'm not as familiar with. And if anyone's ever been to Italy on a bus tour or otherwise, you know it's a pretty small place about the area of Arizona, but it has literally thousands of cultures nested within its borders, and you can never really know all of them, but I'm working on it. <laughs> you wrote that exploring food means exploring history. Can you give us some context? We are going to jump in more and talk about food and the recipes in the book. But give us some history and context for what has happened in the South in the last hundred years. Yeah, the front matter in the book talks about the history of the lower peninsula. So five regions, Campania, Basilicata, Molise, Calabria, and Puglia. Although they each have different realities within them, um, they generally have undergone similar development and conquest for millennia. To bring it more into modern terms, that whole area I mentioned was under Spanish dominion until 1861. The most recent conquerors are the Italians. The things that we sort of distinctly think as quote-unquote Italian, uh, tomatoes, buffalo mozzarella, eggplants, um, those are all really entrenched in the cuisines of the South and have moved up the peninsula post-unification. I should also mention that eggplants are not indigenous to Italy, nor are tomatoes nor are buffaloes. <laughs> so the South is this place where historically, because of its strategic location, the richness of its cities, and the promise of its fertile lands, has received a lot of produce from all over the world. While tomatoes at first were thought to be either like too voluptuous, therefore very tempting, too sort of breast-like and preached against even by Franciscans, they eventually were adopted into the food culture in the 18th century. Eggplants, you know, adopted much earlier. They've been around since the ninth century, so a pretty long time. But, but I digress. Yeah, like the, the idea of the, the cuisines of the South, or the idea of a Southern cuisine, I think is sort of a, a misnomer. I do believe that you can categorize things as generally Southern, but what the book tries to do is break down the unique nature of subregions. Many of the recipes are, you know, things you might find all over the city of Naples. Others are unique to a single home or single village. And so with those sort of that survey of, of recipes, you get a good, a pretty good panorama of what the South is all about. Though I would urge you to also visit these places if you have eight weeks. That's a really <laughs> ideal amount of time to start with. Um, if you don't, we'll be talking about ways to, to tackle the South in smaller, more digestible parts. I really enjoyed reading about the Italian unification in here and what happened to the South after that mm -hmm. and how our understanding of Italian-American food mm -hmm. and Italian food in America is sort of a direct consequence yeah. of that. So 
that 1861 unification saw the end of the Spanish domination of the South, a new government under Victor Emmanuel II. He's the guy that has a big white wedding cake building dedicated to him in downtown Rome. He was a king from the north, from Piedmont, a very northern area on the French border. And the South was appealing to Victor Emmanuel and his compatriots because it had tremendous wealth. Like Naples was one of the most populated cities in, in Europe at its peak. Palermo was fabulously rich uh, at a time. And the agricultural lands and the church lands of the South provided a lot of potential revenue. But the people in the South for the unification movement also prevent, presented a threat. So in order to prevent rebellions, prevent the new government from being overthrown, a lot of church lands were confiscated and noble lands uh, were broken up. And the huge number of farmers that survived off of those lands started to starve. And literally millions went to ports and sailed mainly to New York, but of course other cities uh, on the East Coast, some to New Orleans as well, and they landed in cities all over the U.S. Um, and this is at the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, this huge migration is you know, the reason my family came to America. <laughs> and with that migration, huge parts of the South were abandoned, farmlands left unattended. Um, the economy wasn't revitalized with any strategy by the North. And this is when we see our, those terrible stereotypes about the South being like full of backwards farmers start to become sort of Northern propaganda. And things take another turn after the Second World War when large parts of the South were decimated by bombings. And many of them were not fully rebuilt. Walk through the Khalsa in Palermo, which you know, was leveled in the 40s and is just now starting to be revitalized in 2019. The economic decline of the post-war era came with it well, afterwards. Big industrial boom. Farmers who were once doing lots of things by hand were replaced by mechanization. And those few you know, you know, families that were left in these remote regions faced yet another challenge of survival. And they went to Milan, Turin, Rome, Sydney, the cities in Canada, and that huge migration led to hundreds of thousands of more Italians leaving the South, which is why when you visit many of these villages, you know, the, my ancestral village of Spinoza and Basilicata included, you're like, where on earth is everyone? They're in the North, or they're in the U.S., or they're in Canada. Italians migrated all over in search of a better life, and, you know, we see this manifested in, I think, Italian-American cuisine in a way, because many people left parts of Italy and they went abroad, and whether they had any experience in food service, they opened restaurants. This is not a unique story to Italians, of course. And when they arrived in whatever their destination happened to be, they had to adapt. My family landed in New York, where most of the people Italian-American restaurants were serving were German and British. So the cuisine of Italy was adapted to serve palates of people who could afford food at the turn of the 20th century. That evolution continued to the present day. So when you visit an Italian-American restaurant, the dishes that you encounter might have some relationship to Italy, like chicken parm is related to eggplant parm. Eggplant parm is a classic dish of the South. All over Southern Italy, you find this dish. You find exactly zero chicken parmesans. Um, but both in the language as well as somewhat in the preparation, you see this connection. Um, and that's just one of many, many examples. One thing I really like about this book is that it feels like Every recipe in here is very purposeful and included to teach something or to demonstrate something. You even noted that like some really common dishes like 
caprese salad. You don't necessarily include because we know that. We know them. Um, the subtitle is Recipes for Classic Disappearing and Lost Dishes. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you chose what to go in here and what you were trying to say with what you included. My idea was to create a book that was a um, crash course in the cuisines and cultures of South Italy. So I wanted to hit on some specific ingredients and sp some specific dishes in order to basically entice you to cook those things and be really inspired to book a plane ticket to go eat those things in their natural habitat. So to a greater extent than with Tasting Rome, I was thinking about including recipes that were to be cooked. If you buy Tasting Rome, and, and you should to support Book Larder, there are several dishes, almost all of them are in the Ophel chapter. And I included them, even though I knew most people weren't going to cook them. The oxtail terrine, which, you know, the number of oxtails is insane and it takes like, you know, 72 hours to make, like no one's going to do that. But it, I thought it told a story and I thought that was interesting, but I learned a lot of lessons from tasting Rome. And I also feel as though Rome is in absolutely no danger of being forgotten by people. So when it came to the food of the Italian South recipe list, I was much more focused on dishes that you would look at and be like, I want to cook this right now. I don't need to get special ingredients for it. But that also told, told a story. There's a really, really simple like tomato sauce recipe, but you're using tomatoes that you can get if you look in certain Italian gourmet situations for them. But the choice of tomato is different than the sort of mainstream San Marzano, which starts a whole conversation about tomato provenance and cultivation and falsification and then takes you into discussions of modern day slavery in the, in the tomato industry. And with a simple dish that you look at, and you're like, I want to cook that tomato sauce you get a whole set of other topics to ponder. There's also really interesting essays throughout this book, mafia and migration, buffalo mozzarella. But I do also want to just sort of highlight what you said, that the dishes in here are doable and they look really good. Thanks. This one, I, want, I think I'm going to make it tonight, <laughs> bracchetti with burrata, tomatoes, and almond pesto. It's so simple, but doesn't that sound perfect for today? It's a summary dish. Yeah. A lot of the stuff in here looks looks like that. And a lot of it's actually really nice for right now. Yeah. It highlights produce and freshness and simplicity. There. If you like zucchini, you're going to love this cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> there are many zucchini dishes in it. And they all look really good thanks to Ed Anderson and George Dolese, mm. my photographer and food stylist. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. We talked a little bit about Italian unification and how it's led to this mass exodus from the Italian South. I want to connect that a little bit to today. Yeah, I mean, when you walk through East London, you hear so much Italian, um, and honestly, a lot of Barese dialect and a lot of Neapolitan dialect on the street. And in 09, Italy suffered a financial crisis. Austerity is something that Italians have been struggling to survive for a decade now. And especially families in the South, which statistically net less per capita than families in the North, Families had to support children, often facing high unemployment. Youth unemployment in Italy generally was 43% until like 2017. So while it was customary for families to budget to look, look after their adult children, they hadn't budgeted for the loss in wages or the rise in uh, the cost of living increase that came with the euro, and then also you know, looking after adult children until after they had expected Italian people of the South uh, attend university and graduate at higher rates than people in the North, but they go North for university and they stay there. So when you visit, yeah, when you visit a lot of villages, um, and I'll take Spinozo, my 
great-grandparents' village as an example. You know, it's sort of this classic image of a lot of, like, old dudes wearing coppolas, sitting on a bench, talking to each other, and you're like, are there any people under 75 in this entire (laughs) village? And the answer is, like, four. (laughs) Yes, four of them. But... If you want to survive in modern-day Italy and give your kids an opportunity to earn a living, especially in the new economy, um, you move or you send them somewhere else. And that's something that you will encounter in virtually every part of the South. There are places, like there are these silver linings, like um, the city of Matera is undergoing a big boom right now. It's the 2019 culture capital, one of them for Europe. There's been a lot of investment from the European Union, from local sources in revitalizing the culture of that place. Until very recently, a lot of the small businesses, the cave hotels and restaurants were locally owned. Now a lot of Milanese investors are seeing potential there and exploiting tourism boom. And Puglia also generally, like Matera is a town, Puglia is a whole region, but Puglia has really, really benefited from economic development projects over the past decade. And five minutes don't go by. Uh, They don't get a a text or an email from someone saying like, I'm headed to Puglia. Do you have a list? (laughs) So it's a really, really, really like hot destination right now because of that tourism Mm -hmm. investment. Tourism isn't always a negative thing. Mass tourism that disrespects the place that it invades is terrible, of course. But I find individual tourism that frequents small businesses keeps them alive. And even in my home in Rome, a lot of places that I love wouldn't survive without visitors also frequenting those places and and spending their euros. In June, I was in Cilento, which you talk about in this book a lot. And we were in this little town, San Giovanni Apiro, and it's beautiful, it's rocky, and it's kind of like if you have this stereotypical idea of like, what is a little charming Italian village? This is kind of it. And we were the only people there. And they were, trucks would come in every day, two different mozzarella trucks, the buffalo and the cow. And they would deliver mozzarella in a bag and it would go on, the, on top of the counter in the little shop and it would never be refrigerated. And we were the only tourists there. So we got to eat the most amazing food. We got to explore like these epic landscapes and hike and swim and nobody else was there. We stayed with this farmer who I've stayed with before. I... I did like a woofing kind of thing with him a couple years ago, and he's struggling. And it's not because his land isn't amazing and what he's doing is amazing. It's just because nobody's going there. And I think you capture that so well in this book, which is just like, there is so much here Mm. that for whatever reason, it's not on our radar and we're not going, but we should be for a lot of reasons. But the first reason is because it's amazing. And I kind of just wanted to hear your thoughts on somebody wants to go to Italy and they have been to Florence and Rome and they want adventure and they Mm. want something interesting and like authentic, whatever that means. But how do they start and how do you plan a trip and where should they go? And just, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit on that. I mean, I get this question a lot and it depends on the person. Everyone's different. Every family is different. If you have Italian American heritage, like find out where your family's from, use that as a destination because of the lack of economic development in the South, part of deliberate policies from Rome. We don't have like massive highways or super efficient roadways going through every part of the South, but there's a really convenient airport called Capodichino in Naples. You can get to Naples from Rome on a one hour train super fast and comfortable. And you can rent a car there and take off and maybe use you know, Naples as your departure point and Bari or Reggio Calabria as your destinations and drive around. You probably want to have 
a few hotels booked <laughs> in the meantime. But you can also sort of meander through the Sanyo and Irpinio, stay in agriturismi. There are lots and lots of sites that showcase different agriturismi and we'll categorize them by the amenities that they offer. Some are not quite luxurious, but close. Um, and others are very, very primitive. There are tons of reviews online. And now, you know, with a simple click, you can translate all those reviews in German and Italian into English very quickly. I have a lot of free resources on my site about how to do it. And katieparla.com has a whole city guide section accessible from the front page. So you're like, I want to go to Puglia. You find the Puglia page. I want to go to Naples. You find the Naples page. I respond to all DMs when people say like, oh, I'm thinking about going here. I've got like canned replies. This is what you do when you want to go to Chilento. Like, I don't need to do a lot of extra work to make this happen for you guys. <laughs> so do write to me. Yeah, like I think not having an agenda for every single minute, which I definitely would have when I traveled in Italy at first because I was on a really strict budget. I wanted to maximize every minute. I wanted to cross off every single thing in my guidebook. Some of you might be too young to remember what those are. <laughs> but I really prefer the adventure that you can have when you don't really have a checklist to work from. Now that said, if you go to Naples, you have to go to the archaeological museum. Like, don't play yourselves. You gotta go. If you make it to Reggio di Calabria, same. If you go to Bar, you've got to hang out in Città Vecchia, in Bari Vecchia, in this like beautiful labyrinth of medieval buildings. So there are cultural destinations, for sure, and there are tons of UNESCO World Heritage Sites, but between point A and point B, There are lots of national parks and mountains and all sorts of things to hike. Tons of hiking resources, too. A lot of, like, Italian alpine sites will have um, different uh, recommended paths. So there's stuff out there. It's just not usually all in one place. But, yeah, also get full insurance coverage on your rental car. So <laughs> It's real, it makes it a lot more fun to drive in South Italy. In Food of the Italian South, you spotlight a lot of specific people mm. and restaurants doing really interesting work, which is why, for me, it's, like, Next time I go, like, this is a guidebook. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, pull these places out and map them and then go figure out an adventure based around that. I was wondering if you could tell us maybe about one or two people or restaurants or places that were very memorable for you. Well, if anyone had the pasta, you've already experienced one of those places, E Corti, which is in Santa Anastasia. It's a Soma Vesuviana area, very close to Mount Vesuvius. Uh, you can see Naples from the village, practically. And it's a super volcanic place where Angela Ciriello and her family have been making basically like home food. They serve it at their trattoria for generations. Angela's third generation. Uh, she's got the most stunning collection of copper pots in her kitchen. She will invite you to look at the kitchen if you ask. If you let them know that you saw her in this book, they'll be super excited. Mm -hmm. They are, the family is so, so, so wonderful. And they're just like doing their thing every day, even though they're absolutely dead at lunch mm -hmm. and most weeknights and really get, you know, most of their crowd on Saturdays and Sundays, which is when locals might go out to eat. Go on like a Tuesday at lunch and you'll mm -hmm. be the only people there and you'll get to try things that most most people in that area eat for comfort at home. And this is a good example. This is Angela Ciriello's trash can pasta. It's like fancy puttanesca. I use spaghetti, you can use fusilli. I think actually the fusilli works really well with this to capture some of the ingredients, but it's a sauce made with tomato, pine nuts, raisins. You can throw in capers, you can throw in anchovies. It's basically all the little stuff that you have left over once you've prepared your Christmas meal. I don't know how much you know food preparation you guys do for Christmas, but in the Naples area, people make a lot of food. Sometimes they're so busy 
working that they forget to eat. So a really quick pasta at the end of the night with a condiment like this is a classic. And like Di Pietro in uh, Milito Urpino opened in the 30s as a cafeteria and now also like shockingly empty almost daily. One reason that they have any clientele at all is because they're very close to Ariana Urpino where Cantina Giardino Vineyard is. And so the vineyard owners will bring British and American wine <laughs> importers for lunch and start like opening crazy bottles and stuff. But you know, this family has been really hard at work for so, so long and they're just barely holding on and they make the most delicious lamb and really, really exceptional minestre of all sorts. And minestre is something that if you spend a lot of time in the north or in Rome, um, you might not encounter very much, but the minestra, which is basically like a really brothy soup made with tons of vegetables, sometimes legumes, sometimes bits of meat. That's like a way to make something with a lot of flavor when you only have like a handful of ingredients. So it's really, really low in calories um, and is meant to sort of fill your stomach with liquid when you don't have much else. But the minestre on the menus of the South are things that you should be seeking out because you won't, you know, they're, when you do see them on menus, that's like someone's like home recipe. They're like granny's broth. And that's a, that's a really special experience. So shout out to the Minestra di Pietro. How fun would it be to just like take this book and go to these places and show people? I'm here because of this book and you're in here. And people would be so happy and just, I just love that idea. Can we talk a little bit about Naples? Of course. The first time I went, um, I stayed at a hostel and there was this mandatory meeting with the hostel owner where he sat you down for a PowerPoint and he dispelled myths about Naples. Um, and it was cool. He's like, you know, look at the crime here versus Barcelona. Like, it's a lot higher. Yeah. Like, the petty, the petty theft and things that happen there. Tell us about Naples. I love Naples. Okay. It's a city on the Bay of Naples. It's not quite in the shadow of Vesuvius. Vesuvius is, like, pretty far away. So no risk of, like, eruptions or anything hitting the city. The energy of the center of town which was laid out in Greek times, is so intense. If it's too much for you, <laughs> take a walk along the sea because it's, there's such a frenetic pace to the downtown city center, which follows these long avenues that meet at perpendicular angles. It's the grid system that the Greeks laid out when the city was Neapolis, new city, you know, pre-Roman. The um, chapels and palazzi might need a fresh coat of stucco on the exterior, but inside there are these spectacular frescoes and sculptures and oil paintings. And if you're skeptical about Naples, I recommend just heading down for the day the next time you're in Rome. Hire my friend Fiorella. She's got a company called Pompeii versus Vesuvius. Fiorella Squilante. Like if you have absolutely no interest in Naples, if you go to Fiorella to, on a tour with Fiorella, you will buy property in Naples. <laughs> like I swear. Um, you'll want to be her neighbor. She's the best person. And People have literally named their firstborn after her. She's that great. Um, so even restaurants have been named after her. But yeah, like someone who's passionate about Naples, like she is or like I am, it's like it's such a different city when you visit with someone who's excited about it. And yeah, you just got, you got to be selective. Like skip all the tourist spots for pizza. Go to Attilio where they definitely shouldn't let a dog in the kitchen, but there's definitely like a dog like mm. circulating through. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter because you're not getting anything from the kitchen. You're getting the pizza from the oven, so it's fine and super hygienic. Um, yeah, like the the vibe in the center of town is really amazing, and then it totally shifts to something much more mellow and elegant when you're on the bay, uh, strolling through the Villa Comunale along Chiaia, or you know, going to Cinquanta Colo Pizzeria in Mergellina. Uh, I also really love 
an island in the Bay of Naples called Procida, which feels like the grittiest part of Naples snapped off of the mainland and floated into the sea. And it's so <laughs> cool. P-R-O-C-I-D-A. Check it out. I've got a guide on my site. Yeah, but like imagine like taking the train, walking, feeling like things are a little bit sketchy for a minute, a bunch of guys trying to sell you like iPhones and iPads at the train station. But like they're not going to rob you unless you have a Rolex, then you're at risk. And then, so don't leave your Rolex. It's so easy. It's so simple. <laughs> um, leave it at home. <laughs> yeah, walk into the historic center, visit like the um, uh, Caravaggio painting, uh, the Seven Acts of Mercy, stunning. Walk to Attilio, eat a pizza, head down via Toledo, a.k.a. via Roma, to Piazza del Plebiscito, one of the largest piazzas in Europe. Walk along the sea, drink too much coffee, get a buzz on, have a pastry in Marjolina back to the station, and you've had, like, the best day ever. Oh, I forgot. Naples Archaeological Museum first. <laughs> I personally want to ask you about pizza culture. Mm. I think I've just never been to a place where it is just amazing. Mm-hmm. It just kind of unites the city, and I, I don't know. Yeah. I just want to hear it, yeah. what you think about that. Pizza has become synonymous with Naples. Every Neapolitan will tell you pizza was invented in Naples. That is not true. <laughs> What we know today as pizza, a dough disc with tomato and possibly other items on it, really boomed as a fast food that people would eat standing up on the street till in the 20th century, the interior dining uh, became more customary. At most places, it's super cheap. It's meant to be very affordable and caloric to give you energy because people, especially as pizza was becoming more and more uh, popular, people ate it because they needed sustenance and When people are hungry and they have good ingredients around them, they put those two ideas together and make something tasty. Um, And the Neapolitans have certainly capitalized on pizza as a concept and almost as like a brand. Like pizza napolitana is defined with a specific litany of characteristics. And I was even driving through Seattle yesterday and I saw Vera Pizza Napolitana on Mm. a place. I'm sure there was like a pulcinella on the window or something. Um, And that declares that the pizzeria is making pizza in accordance with the Neapolitan certification. Now, if you want to veer a little bit away from the Neapolitan certification, which guarantees a set of characteristics and not necessarily quality, that's something else, then you'll find people who are experimenting, but who are seen as breaking the rules. Franco Pepe is a good example of this. He's now been canonized practically as a pizza god. He's in Cagliazzo outside of Naples. And while his family, the Antica uh, Pizzeria Pepe, um, which is in the same town, has the uh, Vera Pizza Napolitana certification, he prefers not to espouse that ideology because he feels it's too dogmatic, it's too limiting, and that if he's part of that category, then he's associating himself with the low-quality pizza makers. So he wants to extract himself completely from that category. Um, of course, there's like plenty of drama. There are lots of cases in Naples of families like splintering apart because one person wants to do something modern, one person wants to do something traditional. Um, the Salvo brothers are another good example of this. Go to their very traditional pizzeria in San Giorgio Cremano, and then head to Cinquanta Calò in Mergellina, where one of the brothers, Chiro, has broken off to do something very modern and like quite fancy, um, with you know all sorts of ingredients and their provenance is listed in a way that evokes more of like a sort of Seattle, Portland menu writing than a Neapolitan one. But long story short, eat a lot of pizza. <laughs> eat fried pizza. Eat pizza that's folded into a little triangle. Eat pizza sitting down. Eat pizza standing up. 
eat all the pizzas. <laughs> we are going to open it up now to your questions. So yes. My question is: Is there an expectation that when there is a special of the day, that that's really what you should? I say it depends. It's always true that the server or chef know better than you do what you want to eat. That's a theme throughout Italy. They know better than you what you want. <laughs> you know, I've I've definitely learned this lesson by ordering what I wanted from a menu and then seeing like the special of the day or maybe not even the special, just the house specialty go out and be like, "Oh, damn, I should have ordered that." And then like having a bad time and then going back again and be like, "Oh, would have been so much better if I had just followed the advice." It's, you know, Italy and especially in the south I find is not about the upsell. They're not trying to like unload the, you know, fish on you because it's about to go off. Like they gen especially in Naples, they like gen genuinely want you to enjoy yourself because they want you to go tell people that it wasn't an awful city. Um and people are very 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 self-conscious about the reputation of the city. So, yeah, like wherever you go, any city, any trattoria, any bakery, any gelato place, they're always going to have what they're known for. and that's sort of like a sort of crowdsourced agreement of what like the quote unquote best item is and they might have a long list of menu items but locals regulars will go for just a small selection of those and that's pretty standard across the peninsula yeah what's your perspective on these villages selling these homes for a dollar to try to infuse yeah that's a great question i am deliberately not a property owner in italy because there's so many bureaucratic complexities. So, I'm not sure if any of those buy this village for a euro or buy this house for 50 euros deals are good investments. I would imagine that a lawyer should be involved in any transaction of the sort. And it's, you know, it's complicated. There are lots and lots of obstacles to renovating property in Italy. So, while I do like the idea of especially people with Italian American heritage and a lot of us have gotten our dual citizenship because the government sort of wanted to draw us back. I like the idea of people investing. I'm just not sure it's like a savvy business decision necessarily for an individual unless they have unlimited funds and are just like very curious to see what it's like to renovate a house in a foreign language. Um I'm and I'm not even 100% certain that the villages have any expectation to sell property, but it does get a lot of eyeballs on the place. CNN will like send a correspondent or, you know, whatever, Forbes will write an article about it. Um so you'll get a lot of sort of PR out of it. Would you see the demise of the culture or preservation of it? Well, unless it's like a huge run on a village by a lot of people who have no interest in preserving the culture, I think it's okay. Like I people always ask me like Isn't this place going to get ruined if a lot of people start going? Like no. It's so hard to ruin a place because not that many people are going to go. Even if there are a thousand articles about a place, very few people are going to get out of the Rome, Florence, Venice like circuit. So few that it's like inconsequential. I mean, I've seen that writing about places in very well-followed publications for 16 years, and a little bit of interest in those places has made a big difference. Other questions? Yeah. Is not is not knowing the language Italian a barrier? Okay, so if you need to have like a very profound philosophical discussion, yes. <laughs> if you need to feed yourself, get shelter, pump gas, no. Italians now speak foreign languages with greater frequency 
And that's partly because of the financial crisis that sent kids abroad, where they've learned new languages. But I I would say most Italians are like very understanding that you did not come to Italy with 100% fluency. What they do expect is a set of polite phrases. Salve. You don't have to learn what time of day you say buongiorno and buonasera. You just have to say salve. Mm-hmm. Hello and goodbye. It's a little bit nicer than ciao. Per favore, grazie. Mm-hmm. So like three words and, and you'll build on that as you go, but no one needs you to speak fluently. It's not expected. But you know, when you walk into a business, say hello, like acknowledge the people that are there, even if they don't say hi back. <laughs> yeah. Is there an olive oil crisis? And do we have yeah. to be that concerned about them diluting that it's not pure olive oil when you buy it? Well, there are two, there are two things in that question. There is an olive oil crisis. Production was down considerably last year. Well, there's a, there's a blight all over Salento, but there also was you know, a series, two harvests in a row were affected by terrible weather conditions. Um, the Gola podcast, which I suggest you all subscribe to, not because I'm on it, but because Danielle Caligari is amazing to listen to. She's much more interesting than I am. We did an olive oil episode that talks all about this. Do you have to worry about the olive oil that you're purchasing being diluted, you have to worry about all sorts of like junk being in it. Often olive oil is some poor quality nut oil that has chlorophyll and other things added to it to approximate the appearance of olive oil. Domestic olive oil from the US or high quality sources from Italy are really expensive. So that means, you know, the expensive high quality certified products are few and the, you know, the bulk of what's out there is industrial, sometimes authentically olive oil, but from a, a poor source or something that's contaminated. But yeah, I mean, I, I struggle to find olive oil unless I go to a handful of places in, in Rome or get it from friends who I know I've... Here in the U.S., do you have any suggestions? Gustiamo, for sure. Formaggio Kitchen, Zingerman's. Uh, got any tips for choosing good tomatoes here? Not necessarily fresh, because I didn't find some of those at the farm mm-hmm. market, but like, there's so many different like San Marzano tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, San Marzano tomatoes at their sort of original flavor profile were very, very intensely acidic, mm-hmm. had a lot of flavor, and that was sort of bred out in order to promote production. I would say look for other tomato varieties, Piannolo, Corbara, those aren't super commercially recognized varieties. So when you find them, they tend to be from smaller companies. And I wish I had a litany of shops here in Seattle to share with you um, of where you can find things like this. But I'm like definitely a mail order type of person because I'm always on the road. So Gustiamo has great stuff. Yeah, and then the other places I mentioned, Formaggio Kitchen. And And I was just wondering if you could give us a window into maybe your next project. Mm. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to jinx it. Is jinxing real? No. No, okay. Uh, The next book will be about some of my most treasured places in Italy, food of the Italian islands. So, Sardinia? (laughs) That wasn't as enthusiastic as I had hoped. So, yeah, like Sicily, of course, but then all the islands around Sicily. Sardinia, of course, but then like La Maddalena and Carloforte and all these cool places. Procida, which I mentioned before. Ponza, which is amazing. Ventotene. I'm so excited about this topic because you think like islands, fish. But no, there's so much more. The islands have these like crazy herbs and all sorts of like wildly aromatic things and lots of pork and rabbit and good wines great legumes. So it's going to be 
a real, a really fun book to research. Um, yeah, I'm no dummy. <laughs> Definitely gonna go hard on some of those islands this summer. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be, real, I think one that's really fun to cook from. And I feel like in a way, islands are less intimidating for people, especially because like, you know, Prochet is tiny. You can walk across it in an hour. Um, that's a lot less, you know, terrifying if you don't have a lot of information about it than like go to Campania and drive around and like find an adventure. <laughs> so yeah, so that's uh, that's what's probably happening and likely spring 2021 publication. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you guys. Thank you. Many thanks to Katie Parla for finally visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Food of the Italian South and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. As of this recording, we have signed copies of Food of the Italian South available. This podcast was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Booklarder. For more information about Booklarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.